You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, President and Mrs. Biden hosted their third state dinner at the White House last night. Their guest was Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India. Given the current tensions between the United States and China, what are the diplomatic benefits of such a gathering? I know just the person to ask. White House Bureau Chief Tolu Olarudipa. Tolu, welcome back to First Look. It's great to be with you, Jonathan. All right, so a state dinner is the highest honor the president can give a visiting head of state or head of, of government. Biden's first was for France, the second was South Korea, and that was less than two months ago. So why India and why now? Well, if you listen to White House officials, they say not only is India the most populous nation in the world, but it's also America's most important friend on the global stage at this moment. And that is a, that is really a high honor for India to be such an, an important ally, such an important partner on a number of key issues. Obviously, it's a bulwark against China. Over the last couple of years, we've seen the relationship with, between China and India start to sort of deteriorate in, in some ways that is renowned to the benefit of the U.S., who is looking for allies in the region to counter China. Uh, you also have India partnering with the U.S. on things like security and defense and technology, not only uh, what's happening in the region, but also you have a very large and uh, increasingly uh, influential Indian diaspora here in the United States, including uh, the vice president of the United States and the members of Congress, members of, of the business community, men members uh, and leaders in the arts world. And so India is really having a moment on the global stage and America wants to be part of it. It wants to be aligned with India. And that's why they extended this invitation for the state dinner, even though India has a number of human rights concerns that uh, a number of human rights groups are uh, calling out and saying that President Biden shouldn't be rolling out the red carpet without also raising uh, some of these concerns about the repression of minorities and the uh, repression of free speech in India. And so it is a delicate balance that the U.S. is trying to strike, uh, but they felt that it was important to extend this invitation at this moment. Has has your reporting or have there any been any indications coming out of the White House that the president did indeed bring up with Prime Minister Modi that his country's um, record on, on human rights and oppression and all of the things that um, um, folks who don't like this visit are raising? We did hear from White House officials before the visit saying that Every time President Biden meets with a world leader, he brings up these issues. It was very generic. It wasn't specific to India. And when President Biden made his comments during the joint press conference yesterday, he said, you know, India and the United States and every country around the world has challenges when it comes to human rights. And so it wasn't very specific when it comes to those public comments. And so a number of human rights activists say they wanted more. They wanted the president to press uh, Modi more specifically when he was asked about this during the press conference, about these specific human rights concerns, about the repression of free speech, about the uh, challenging uh, conditions that minorities in India face, especially religious minorities. And so uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, what's lacking in the president's public remarks. Uh, we are still waiting to hear a little bit more about what happened behind the scenes. But if you're Prime Minister Modi, you have to be happy with uh, how this visit went because there were crowds of chanting Indian Americans. There was a pretty effusive praise from the president of the United States during a press conference and no major challenges over human rights, uh, either during his 
appearance with Biden or his appearance uh, before the joint meeting of Congress. And so it's uh, very difficult for human rights groups to feel like they got what they wanted out of this visit because Modi definitely got what, what he wanted. And, and he got what he wanted, but can we, just real quickly, how hard or how difficult was it for the White House to get Prime Minister Modi to agree to do a joint press conference? Because he doesn't do that in his own country. Talk to the press, I mean. Yeah, it's a very rare occasion to see Prime Minister Modi standing before a lectern in front of a group of journalists willing to answer questions. Now, this was a one by one, which meant there was one question from a U.S. reporter and one question from an Indian reporter. And so not the kind of rollicking free exchange of uh, question and answers that you would expect at a press conference, but definitely rare for the Indian prime minister to appear in this kind of setting. And we heard from uh, people within the Biden administration saying they were lobbying hard for this, that the Indians were not in favor of doing this. They've rarely done this uh, over the nine years that uh, Modi has been uh, a prime minister. It's very rare to see him taking questions in this kind of forum. And so the, the U.S. officials pushed very hard for this. They wanted it and they were able to get it. And so that is not a small thing, even though it was a limited press conference. Uh, it was a rare occasion to see Prime Minister Modi not only answering questions, but being challenged very directly about his human rights uh, record in India and being challenged very directly about the repression of, of rights for the minorities, Muslim minorities in India. And so mm -hmm. uh, it was rare to see that. And uh, something that the U.S. and the U.S. officials say is a sign that they are taking democracy very seriously right. and they are pressing right. the Indians on these things because they were able to get this press conference. All right, let me get you on two things before I, I will be compelled to let you go. Um, as you mentioned, we've been talking about that joint press conference. And um, the president was asked about a comment he made at a fundraiser earlier this week in which he referred to Chinese President Xi Jinping as a, quote, dictator when talking about Xi's reaction to the spy balloon situation. Listen to President Biden's response when asked about it. I expect to be meeting with President Xi sometime in the future, in the near term, and uh, I don't think it's had any real consequence. Notice he didn't, he didn't say, oh, I didn't say that. Uh, do senior White House officials believe there will be consequences for what the president said, especially given the president's comments came on the heels of Secretary Blinken's trip to China to mend fences just last week. Yeah, this comment from, from President Biden referring to uh, Xi as a dictator uh, did not come in prepared remarks. There were not remarks that the White House had vetted. This was an off-the-cuff comment during a fundraiser in which the president was sort of speaking uh, extemporaneously. And so a lot of uh, what's happening at the White House and uh, at the State Department is a cleanup effort to try to reassure uh, our Chinese partners and our Chinese uh, interlocutors that this was not a change in U.S. policy, even though President Biden was the first American president to refer to the leader of China as a dictator, uh, that this was something that the president said, but it doesn't change the fact that we are trying to have this thaw in the relationship with China. And we're trying to uh, lessen some of these tensions that we're seeing between the U.S. and China ever since the spy balloon was shot down uh, a few months back. And so uh, this does uh, put a little bit of a wrinkle in the relationship, but there is a, a sense that both China and the U.S. could benefit from having uh, a more, uh, you know, beneficial relationship, a more uh, cordial relationship, and not have things as frosty and icy as they've been over the past several uh, months, in part because 
the U.S. and China are global powers, and they do need to deconflict when it comes to military and when it comes to a number of different things. And so there is a sense that even with this comment, that both sides realize that it's in their interest to try to calm tensions and move things forward in a relationship. Right. And last question for you, Tulu. Among the guests at last night's uh, state dinner with the Indian prime minister was the president's son, Hunter Biden, who pleaded, who pled guilty to two minor tax crimes and a, and a gun charge. In the plea deal, the federal government notes the investigation is ongoing. Has the White House given any indication that it is worried there could be more to Hunter Biden's troubles? They are trying to put up a united front and saying we're not going to comment on this any further, that the president is proud of his son and is hoping that he will get his life together and is supporting him in that process. The fact that he invited him along with other family members to the state dinner yesterday is a sign that he continues to stand with his son. But we are continuing to see that this investigation, this process is not over. We just saw uh, reports of a, of a whistleblower at the IRS essentially saying that the investigation of Hunter Biden was slow walked and con you know raising concerns about how this investigation took place and uh, reporting to Congress that they are not satisfied with this plea deal. And so we do expect there to be more investigation happening, not only at the Justice Department, but also in Congress, where they are, especially the Republican uh, leaders in the House, are saying they are not happy with how this worked out, and they want to investigate the investigators and see if there's anything more that they can find about what Hunter Biden was doing. And so even as this plea deal seems to close one chapter on this investigation, there's far it is far from over, and there's much more to come uh, about what's happening uh, when it comes to the president's son. And it could be the kind of thing that extends not only through this year, but also into the election season next year, as we hear from a number of Republican candidates also raising the issue of a quote-unquote two-tiered system of justice and allegations of corruption in the Biden family. Yeah, House Oversight Chair uh, Congressman Comer has been investigating Hunter Biden. Oh, basically since the beginning of the new Congress. Tolu Olarunipa, I neglected to say when I introduced you, Pulitzer Prize winning White House bureau chief for The Washington Post. Thanks for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists E.J. Dion and Hugh Hewitt. Ah, got the order right. You're stacked on top of each other. Guys, welcome back to First Look. Good morning, Good to be Jonathan. with you, Jonathan. All right, so EJ, let's pick up the conversation on Hunter Biden's plea deal. Just your reaction in general. Well, first of all, I think we should look at the fact that David Weiss, who was the U.S. attorney in Delaware, could have been replaced by Joe Biden. He asked for the resignations of all the U.S. attorneys um, in the country, which is normal. He left him there because this Trump appointed, respected by the way, U.S. attorney, but this Trump appointed U.S. attorney had been investigating his son. He didn't want to disrupt the investigation. The investigation has been going on for five years. Uh, and these were the charges that he levied. He extracted a plea deal from Hunter Biden. Uh, and that just clearly isn't good enough for Republicans. Now, he has said he's gonna keep investigating. I think the Republicans in Congress, if Biden's reelected, Republicans in Congress are going to keep investigating Hunter Biden till 2029. They just do not want to let go of this. Um, but obviously, this is the U.S. attorney in place. He's got a right to continue the investigation. 
uh, and we'll see what happens. But I think this notion that it was a sweetheart deal is absurd given how much uh, this U.S. attorney put into the case uh, to sort of make sure uh, that justice was done. And also, the, you know, some observations being that if Hunter Biden's last name weren't Biden, given this, the same charges, he might not have been charged if his last name um, weren't Biden. Hugh, you tweeted. Correct. Um, if you look at those. Yeah. Good point, Jonathan. Yeah. Go ahead. No, finish your thought, EJ. No, no, I think that is a good point that these charges, both on the guns and on the taxes, might have not have required, uh, and the, he did the guilty plea on the taxes, um, that when you compared apples to apples, this was probably tougher than other people might have gotten. So, Hugh, you tweeted that part of the prosecutor's statement uh, wasn't getting enough attention. It's And it's the line I mentioned um, to Tulu, quote, the investigation is ongoing. What else, Hugh, do you believe might come from this case? Well, I think one thing that's going to come is a uh, hearing in front of the House Oversight or Judiciary Committee into U.S. Attorney Weiss's statement that the investigation is ongoing and into the whistleblower allegations that surfaced yesterday from IRS agents that the uh, Department of Justice had impeded the investigation. I want to be careful to delineate. This says nothing about President Biden. It says everything about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's an addict. I kind of admire the president standing resolutely by his son in recovery. I don't think that's an impeachable offense. I think that's actually admirable for the president to stand by his son. I do want to know if Mr. Weiss was frustrated in other districts, as has been alleged. I also want to underscore, although he is a, quote, Trump appointee, you only get to be the U.S. attorney in a state with two Democratic senators if the Democratic senators, in this case, the remarkable and fun Chris Coons and Tom Carper, give the thumbs up. So he's probably a career prosecutor. He is probably a very good witness. I look forward to hearing him. Uh, I do want to know more about the obstruction. I don't think we'll be investigating Hunter Biden through 2029. I do think that whether or not DOJ main justice interfered with Mr. Weiss is a key question that needs to be answered. But Hugh, you mentioned that, that you know you look forward to uh, testimony before before the House. You know, House Oversight Chair uh, Comer has you know talked about the fact that you know there are these whistleblowers out there who have this information and yet he hasn't talked to them in three years. So how should the American people view what Chairman Comer is doing as something that is objective? Like truly going what? after the facts as opposed to targeting um, an, an individual who also is the son of the president. Whistleblowers, Jonathan and EJ knows this, do not arrive on schedule by uh, delivery date. In this case, <laughs> it's House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith, who had the whistleblower allegations from the two IRS agents made yesterday. I think he will refer them to Comer or to uh, 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 Jim Jordan over at Judiciary. Because I don't see how Ways and Means gets into this with an oversight hearing. Point being, new developments are new developments. And so when we see a new development, it starts the clock over. I just want to assure those conservatives who are watching, it's not open day. On, Hunter Biden wrote some amazing things, alleging his father was involved. Addicts do terrible things. They ought not to conclude anything about the president on the virtue of his son's WhatsApp messages. Um, EJ, let's switch gears and talk about the dictator comment that the president made at a at a fundraiser earlier in the week in California. Um, 
is this strategy or a gaffe? Because we've been, we've been here before where the president will say something that goes way beyond not just where um, the administration would like him to go rhetorically, but also sometimes in terms of U.S. policy. So is it strategy or a, ga or a gaffe to call the Chinese president a, a quote-unquote dictator? I want to answer that. I just, when we're talking about dictatorship, I do want to mention Evan Gershkovich, who's being held unjustly by the Russians. There was a hearing on Thursday where they're not going to release him, and we should stand in solidarity every occasion we have, and so I'm using this one. I think that the Biden statement on China as a dictatorship is a classic case of what the that great Washington sage Mike Kinsley once said, which is the definition of a gaffe is when a politician blurts out the truth. Of course he's a dictator. I don't think any of the three of us uh, would disagree that he is a dictator. Uh, Biden uh, did not try to, quote, clean up that comment at his news conference yesterday. Uh, he reiterated it. And I think it just goes to show the sort of difficult balance that our policy toward China uh, is going through right now. Xi has toughened that regime, centralized power, restricted what rights there were in China. That's a reality. The attack on the Uyghurs, all of this is part of his record. But the administration does not want war with China. Uh, we know that our economies are closely intertwined. Um, and so Secretary of State Blinken went over there to try to open conversations with them. Uh, and I don't think this one comment from President Biden is going to change the course we are on, which is a tough policy uh, toward China that also tries to keep the conversation open so we avoid a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. You know, Hugh, Republicans have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, been consistently critical of, of the president for not being as tough on China as they'd like or as tough on China as they believe Donald Trump was. It isn't calling the head of a government a dictator pretty tough, or do they want what they would view as tough policies? Uh, both and more, Jonathan. I applaud the president's brief dalliance with the truth yesterday because uh, General Secretary Xi is a dictator. Kudos to EJ for bringing up the Uyghurs, which Secretary Blinken was loath to do. There is an ongoing genocide, an ongoing genocide in China with a million Uyghurs behind concentration camp wires, many of whom are being abused, often killed, their organs harvested, their women raped. Uh, the, the absolute horror of it resembles nothing so much as the silence of the West vis-a-vis -vis the Jews in Germany in the 30s. And I am disgusted when anyone goes to Beijing and doesn't talk about the Uyghurs, so kudos to um, EJ. The, the General Secretary Xi is a dictator, like Putin, like Iran's supreme leader, and the alliance of the dictators is greatly alarming and threatening, and I'm looking forward to serious, serious reallocation of resources to the Pacific to deal with that. That has not been forthcoming, and the idea that the balloon incident is behind us four months later, that's laughable. It was weak by Secretary Blinken. It'll be an issue in 2024. Let's talk about the Supreme Court, EJ. Senate Democrats are renewing their push for legislation to tighten ethics rules for Supreme Court justices after reports that Justice Samuel Alito took a fishing trip years ago that was partially financed by a politically active billionaire, among other things, in, in, the, story, in the story from ProPublica, which we'll get to in a moment. But this comes after simil similar stories involving Justice Clarence Thomas. How long 
can Chief Justice John Roberts and the High Court resist calls for ethics reform? Well, it appears that they think they can go on forever. Um, I mean, let's try to put this shoe on another foot. Imagine, for example, that a very wealthy supporter of reproductive rights had taken a comparable trip, whether fishing or something else, uh, with a liberal justice and what conservatives uh, would say about it. The really distressing thing here is the Supreme, there seems to be no way, according to the Supreme Court, according to just, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, to impose any sort of ethics rules on the court. Men and high-level civil servants, civil servants across the board, have higher ethics rules across the government. Every other judge, uh, federal judge, at every other level has to live by certain ethics rules. And here uh, we have this circumstance where years later we learn of this, and uh, it was um, maybe the way to answer a reporter's query uh, is not to answer the reporter, but to go to the Wall Street Journal editorial page and say, gee, there's this story coming out about me, and I'm not going to answer the reporter. I'm going to post this op-ed. And right. uh, there were a lot of kind of laughable parts of Justice Alito's uh, sort of defense, if that's what you want to call it. But I think these are legit questions. We need ethics rules uh, for Supreme Court justices. And I think this latest report lit a fire under Democrats in the Senate. You know, Hugh, speaking of, I mean, the investigative journalism outlet ProPublica um, is the, the entity that we're talking about. And they sent detailed questions to Justice Alito before it published what we now have read is a damaging story. Instead, as EJ pointed out, the justice got an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal on their opinion pages um, as a kind of prebuttal. Why didn't the justice just either answer the questions or even decline to comment? Because ProPublica is funded by dark money from the left, Jonathan, and everybody knows that, and their hit piece on Clarence Thomas was the same. I want to make three points. First of all, it is unconstitutional for the United States Congress and the president to attempt to regulate the ethics of the Supreme Court. They are a separate and independent branch, and no one can legislate. They voluntarily comply with the rules that are applied to the lower courts, which are uh, mandatory. But those voluntary rules were changed regarding disclosure this year. And as Justice Alito points out in his Wall Street Journal, he complied. There is absolutely no story here other than the attempt to prepare the way to pack the court and ruin the, ruin, the, the rule of law. I also want to point out that next week, we're going to get a decision on Harvard. Now, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is probably going to write the majority. Justice Kagan is probably going to write the key dissent. Justice Kagan was dean of Harvard Law School. She has ongoing ties. EJ and I met each other most recently in the shadow of Harvard Law School. It does not mean, even though there's an appearance of impropriety, that she might be defending Harvard, that she's actually creating an impropriety. She's not, nor that Chief Justice Roberts, who occasionally, I believe, has been paid by Harvard, is going to write what I expect to be the majority opinion. It's all nonsense. It's a narrative designed to prepare the way to ruin the rule of law in the United States. It's silly and ruinous, and ProPublica is a left-wing hack job. Um, wow. EJ? Wow, you. Uh, first of all, we did indeed meet each other at Harvard, and I think the notion that you you have every right to opine on that case 
Uh, and so do I. And you can't hold where people went to college against them. This has nothing to do with going to Harvard. ProPublica has done all sorts of good investigative work, number one. Number two, we're not talking about somebody who attended a university. We're talking about a free trip, uh, a very expensive trip to an expensive lodge. The, the Alito um, piece in the journal kept trying to downplay everything, including uh, the idea that the wine cost uh, $1,000 and he said it didn't taste like $1,000 wine. Uh, I guess he's got a good palate. But I, you know, I find it astonishing that this is a set of questions that have been asked about Supreme Court justices. And what you describe is a Supreme Court that is totally above the law, which is paradoxical. No one can legislate on them. No one can impose ethics standards on them. Uh, this is a really dangerous situation. You know, you know there is a constitutional remedy. The constitutional remedy is impeachment. If someone has done something wrong, articles of the impeachment ought to be brought on the House floor and debated in the Senate about it. Justice. I'm not talking about where they went to college. I'm talking about that Justice Kagan was dean of Harvard Law School, and the chief justice has, I believe, been a paid lecturer in the summer. Neither of them are recused from the Harvard case, by the way. I'm simply pointing out that if you're concerned about appearance issues, the appearance issues with regards to those two on the Harvard case are much higher than Justice Alito on a cert petition, one of 100,000 that he didn't know Mr. Singer was involved in. It's absurd and silly. And what I want to just point out, it's part of a political campaign to delegitimize the Supreme Court because it has a conservative majority. I get it. Everybody gets it. Let's not pretend a trip to a fishing lodge 15 years ago is an issue of state. It's not. It's silly. Um, what what is also silly is trying to convince the American people that an, an airplane seat on a private plane um, is a quote unquote facility. EJ, I want to pick up on something that um, Hugh just said that the constitutional there's a constitutional remedy to what's happening, and that's impeachment of judges. I'm not a lawyer, and I'm certainly not a constitutional lawyer, but isn't there a legislative remedy? Couldn't Congress? Um, take up some of the, the reforms from the commission that President Biden set up on the judiciary and on the Supreme Court. Couldn't Congress expand, expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court, put term limits on, on, on how long a justice can serve? We haven't always had a Supreme Court with nine justices, right? Right. No, there, certainly adding justices has happened often in our history. I just want to take up impeachment. The reason we have ethics rules that we ask uh, public officials to comply with is we don't want to have to run an impeachment over every kind of potential infraction. That's why we need rules. I do not think it's as clear as you says that there can be no legislation around uh, the Supreme Court, there are rules around other levels of the federal uh, judiciary. We just shouldn't have to resort to impeachment on uh, any kind of infraction. And the notion that this trip doesn't raise uh, ethical questions, he could have reported it. He didn't report it. Um, and, you know, the idea is personal hospitality doesn't have to be reported. Yet the justice said that he wasn't close friends with this gentleman. So I think the notion that you resort to impeachment for any ethical question uh, is absurd also. Let, let me uh, make sure that we get the law right, Jonathan, because you mentioned two different things. 
the court's jurisdiction can be legislated on the appellate side, not its original jurisdiction. That's been asked and answered by the Supreme Court. They may not be uh, legislated about what their conduct is or their ethics. That would be unconstitutional. The case to look at is U.S. V US term limits v. I think Thornton, where there was an attempt to add to the qualifications of someone running for the House or the Senate. It's all unconstitutional. This is black letter law. What people want to make, you can, however, expand the number of justices. FDR tried to do that in 1938 with court packing. He got blown out because that, that number has not changed since the Civil War when it was manipulated politically. And the number nine has been the same since the 1860s. And it would be a devastating blow to the idea of the United States as a nation of laws and not of men if we were to change the number of justices just because left-wing activists don't like the decisions of an originalist court. And it was a devastating blow to the rule of law, Hugh, when uh, 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 President Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland didn't even get a vote. And then a justice was rushed through eight days before Joe Biden got elected president. That's why we're having the conversation on expanding the court. This majority was created in a way that many Americans illegally, I won't say it was illegal, but it was is regarded by many Americans as illegitimate. And look what this new majority has done in exercising its power. That's why we're having this debate right now. And we're going to have to leave it. We have to leave it right there because we are actually way over time. And I don't want to tick off the TV gods. Hugh Hugh, Hugh and E.J. Dion, thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank good to be you, with Charlotte. you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.